morning, Cross Point. Welcome to 2022. Happy New Year. I, for one, am looking forward to, I'm glad we're out of 2021. It was a tough year, and that's an understatement. <laughs> a lot of things happened. One, COVID had lots of different variants, so it's still in our lives. It's still part of who we are. But we are here this morning in this new year that will bring hope, peace, joy, and love into your lives through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We are overjoyed to have you here this morning, either in person or online. I'm going to continue our time of prayer in just a moment, as we've done in the past. And it's been a number of years since we've been doing this, so I don't know exactly how many it is, but we love doing this. And instead of praying for one other fellowship, we're going to be praying for several. Because this last week, on the Hunt Baptist Association website, I saw that they, they named four different churches currently in Hunt Baptist Association that are without pastors. So we're going to be praying for those four fellowships, Old Concord Baptist, Ridgecrest Baptist Church in Commerce, Calvary Baptist Church in Wolf City, and Honey Creek Baptist Church in Wolf City. And I, I spoke to, um, I didn't write his name down, I just went blank, um, the Hunt Baptist Association. Jim, Jim Gatliff, thank you. Um, he didn't include Cross Point because we've got a plurality of elders and he just considers we're covered right now. So. But these other churches have no one to cover them, so we're going to be praying for them. We're also going to be praying for our new pastor as we continue to search for him. We're going to be praying for his family and for his current fellowship. I would ask you also to pray for the pastor search team. We're meeting this afternoon at 4 o'clock. We're moving forward in our process, so just be praying for us. We're going to be praying for an unreached people group in our world. This morning, we're going to pray for the English people in Russia, the northern Caucasus region. There are about 439,000 people. Their main language is English. And if I didn't pronounce that right, Jeff will correct me later. So, but I think that's close. The largest religion is Islam, 99.99%. Their Christian population is less than 0.01%. 0% evangelical, and they're considered a frontier progress area by the Joshua Project. Um, if you know, if you want to know where we get these, a lot of times we get these people groups from this website called joshuaproject.com. You can go and you can see all the different unreached people groups, and it'll, it'll fuel your prayers. I, really, I, I believe it will. So we're going to pray for the breakthroughs in their villages for Jesus' salvation and grace. Then we're going to be praying for our time here this morning. So join me in prayer. Father, we come before you this morning acknowledging your presence in this place because of your love for us, because you have a desire to have a relationship with us. From a human perspective, that doesn't make sense that a holy God would choose and desire a relationship with an unholy people. But Father, that's the love that you have for us. And for that reason, you are here this morning. You are filling this very place. 
And we thank you for that, and we worship you for that. Father, I pray this morning for four other fellowships in our uh, Hunt Baptist Association that are without pastors right now. Old Concord Baptist Church, Ridgecrest Baptist Church in Commerce, Calvary Baptist Church in Wolf City, Honey Creek Baptist Church in Wolf City. Father, I pray for those fellowships this morning, and I pray that you have placed someone in their pulpit today to bring the truth of your word to them. And Father, I pray that you would have already been preparing, and I believe that's the case, the man who would step into that pulpit of those four church fellowships to provide leadership and teaching consistently from your word for those folks. Father, we pray for your grace and mercy to be poured out over those fellowships today. Father, I also pray for our new pastor as we continue to search for him. Pray for his family that their worship would be fueled by their love for you and that their love for one another would grow from that. Father, I pray for, their, um, for his current fellowship that as we move to a place where we're ready to call someone. They're going to be coming out of another fellowship, and I pray for that fellowship to be able to rally, and if they're not expecting this, to move past the shock and maybe even an awe of what's going on, but to trust you in finding their new pastor as well. Father, I pray this morning for the English people in Russia and in the northern Caucasus region. Father, right now, there doesn't seem to be any evangelical movement in that area. Father, I pray that you would place people who love you and who love Jesus, who have asked Jesus to be their Lord, to be able to speak to the English people. And Father, that you would claim those out of that nation for your children. Father, I pray again this morning for our time, this morning, that you would guide us through the leading of the Holy Spirit into the truth of your word. It is in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. <clears throat> now again, we're looking forward to this new year, a year that's been difficult at times mentioned COVID earlier, we continue to you know, struggle with that. We're trusting God in what's going to happen through that. But you know, we've trusted God in another way. For the past seven months, Crosspoint Fellowship has been without a senior teaching pastor. And I'm not telling y'all anything new, you already know that. But I want you to remember that, I want you to reflect on that, and see where God has brought us in the last seven months. <clears throat> I said to, the, to this fellowship in June of 2021 that we are not in crisis. We're not in crisis. I don't believe we have been in crisis since June of 2021. I don't think we've been in crisis at any time. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the head of this church. And we can be thankful for in, for the fact that in our history at Crosspoint, the leadership of the church and the church fellowship itself voted to follow God's design 
and have a plurality of elders in place here at Cross Point. We've been doing that for a long, long time. For at least probably the first year there wasn't and they appointed elders. So since then, the last 17 plus years, we've had a plurality of elders. And we've seen over these last seven months, several men, a number of men, five, six men, have stepped into the pulpit and we've been able to continue the preaching of God's Word. We've gone through the book of James. We've gone through the book of Philippians. Then we had Advent. During all of that time, God has continued to bring people into this fellowship. God is still growing His church. So as we reflect, as we reflect back on 2021, and some of you may be going, whew, man, I'm glad that year's over with. Guess what? The next day, we're still doing the same thing. So that's who we are. That's what we're doing. That's what we're going to continue to do. Neil mentioned earlier that we're going to be starting a new book study today. That's true. As we enter this year of 2022, we're going to be entering a study of the book of 1 John. Toward the back of the Bible, if you don't know exactly where that is, if you go to the very back, you go past the maps and the index, and then, or maybe the concordance, then there's Revelation, right before that is Jude, then 3 John, 2 John, then 1 John. That's where we're going to be, okay, toward the end of the Bible, toward the end of the book. The way we're going to do this, this, this next five months, we're going to preach through this book with four, four men. I want to be preaching in 1 John chapter 1 through the month of January. Then Jason is going to be preaching through 1 John chapter 2 in February. And we're, we're, we're trusting and praying that, that Jessica will not have the baby prior to the end of February so that Jason won't be in conflict. You know. And we've already agreed that uh, Greg's already stepped up, I've stepped up and said, look, if the baby comes early, we got it covered, don't worry about it. So hopefully we've taken that pressure off of Jason and that, but Jason's going to be preaching in February. Greg then is going to be preaching in March in the book of 1 John, or in the chapter of 1 John chapter 3. Okay. Chapter 4 is going to be preached through by Neil in April. And then... The, the, the plan is, at least at this point, I'll be preaching through 1 John 5 in May. Now, there may be some interruptions. One interruption that may well take place is we have a new pastor coming by that time. So please continue to pray that. Don't think, you know, these guys got to get through 1 John before we get our new pastor in. No. <laughs> no, let, let's bring him in. You know, so, so God, just go ahead and bring him. Y'all just keep praying that. Because... We're, we're going to rejoice in that. And it's also my prayer that it, when, whenever the new pastor comes in, if we're not through with 1 John, he may just step in and say, well, let, let me take it. And then he finishes the book. That would be sweet, at least in my, my thought. In any situation, our ultimate goal is to follow God's leading during this time, during these next five months. Whatever may come our way, just please continue to pray for us. Now, as we begin to look at this, this series study of the book of 1 John, let me share with you how this book came to mind. 
starting really back in September, I started praying through and talking with the other elders about what book we're going to do after we finish Philippians and after we get through Advent. So we were looking to the first of the year. And as I prayed, as we talked, as they prayed, nothing really was coming to mind. Then one morning at 3 o'clock in early November, <clears throat> I was awakened. I mean, my eyes just flew open like I was wide, yeah, I was wide awake. And the first thing that came to mind was 1 John. I mean, as I woke up, that thought was in my mind. So I knew that was God leading. And I'd learned from my mentor a number of years ago. He said, Morris, if you're ever sleeping really soundly and you get awakened and something comes to mind or if a name comes to mind, treat that as God leading you. And if it's a name, maybe you need to pray for that person. Or maybe you need to go visit them or maybe you need to call them. Even if it's 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, there may be a crisis going on. So just be sensitive to God's leading. And then he said, as an additional note, if God wakes you up at 2 o'clock in the morning and my name is on your mind, he just wants you to pray for me. <laughs> Don't call. <laughs> Don't come visit. So he was, he, was, he was laughing, and that never happened. So when, that, when, that, when the book of 1 John came to mind at 3 o'clock in the morning, I thought, okay, God. If this is where you're leading us, then help me, help me verify that for me. Strengthen that belief. And then I thought, why First John? You know, why? Why? And the first thing that came to mind was an event that took place in 1983. <clears throat> I know some of you may not have been born then, but that's okay, I was. I was in a graduate, a graduate school course called History and Systems of Psychology over in Commerce. And the professor was an unapologetic, pronounced atheist. I mean, straight up. He gave me a real hard time about my faith walk. We got along well. He was my major professor. I was his graduate assistant. And we got along well, but it, there was a, a, just a vast demarcation between our, my beliefs and his belief that there is nothing to believe in. But this, this course of history and systems of psychology was a course about how lives are to be lived. So there was a lot of different philosophies that we were going to look at that semester. <clears throat> there was about six of us in that class, and we were sitting in the classroom waiting for this professor to show up. He came in, and he, again, he didn't have to introduce himself. He knew all of us. And he said, now, for the next month, do not bring your textbook. We're not going to look at it. Not yet. He said, what I want you to bring next week is a Bible. And he held one up, and it looked like it had just been bought and the cellophane taken off of it. I don't think it had ever been opened. He said, but bring a Bible. And I said, if you don't have one, talk to Morris. He can provide you one. <laughs> you know, so... Like I said, we'd already talked about that before. He then said, what we're going to study, this first system that we're going to study, is the book of 1 John. And I almost fell out of my chair, because I knew who this guy was. And he said, we're going to study that from an academic perspective, because the book of 1 John has the most clearly outlined exposition of what a life is supposed to look like. So we're going to study the system that's laid out in that book 
from an extreme, from, from a purely academic perspective. He said, then, if you have, have other questions about it, ask Morris. <laughs> so he, he threw me under the bus again there, so that was okay. <clears throat> so this book of 1 John is about what our life is supposed to look like. Okay. We're not going to study this on an academic perspective. So if you think we were deep breath, we're not going to do that. We're going we're to go through this book and see the spiritual guidance that God provides to us through the Holy Spirit, through the writings of John, of what our life as Christians are supposed to look like. Now, for this morning, I want us to read the entirety of the first chapter of 1 John. It's only 10 verses, so it's not real long. And if you're able, I would invite you now to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. First John 1, beginning in verse 1. <clears throat> that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we were writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. This is the reading of God's word. Please be seated. <clears throat> Now, while this is the passage for all of January we're going, to get, we're going to dig into, I want to spend a little bit of time this morning lay a, laying a foundation for our study over the next five months by doing a historical examination into who this human writer is and was and who is recording the words from God. Now, keep in mind 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 that says, All Scripture is breathed out literally ex exhaled. That's <sighs> what God does. He breathed the words out. So all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be com competent, equipped for every good work. Now while God uses humans to write the words down in their own style, he breathed the words out. The words came from God. 
So anytime I mention the author of the book of John, while God himself is the ultimate author, I'll be speaking about this John who wrote these words down. Now, most of us know a lot about Paul. We know that Paul wrote 13 epistles of the New Testament. So out of 27 books in the New Testament, 13 are, are penned by Paul. So we hear a lot about Paul just due to his vast amount of information that he added, that God added through him to what we call our New Testament today. So his name surely rises to the surface quite often. <clears throat> and I, I've learned from Neil, it's a great lesson, that as we start a new book, we need to have this historical background to give us a better understanding of who the people were who were first hearing this word, what was going on in that day and time, what was going on in the world, what was going on in that group of people that were receiving this message. So this morning I want to spend just a few minutes laying this foundation down. Now there's two lines of thought regarding the penmanship of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. One, one area of thought by theologians is that these three were written by John the Apostle. I tend to agree with that. Okay, that's just, that, that's my own preference. I've, I've read, that's what I believe. But there's a second line of thought that these three were written by a man named John the Elder. A different John. Okay. Now we know that in these three books, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the author is not identified at all other than from John. There's, there's no reference to, as Paul would put his name in really usually the very first line of the book so that people would know who it was coming from. We don't know why. The author is not identified, much like the, the author of Hebrews is not identified by name. One, one theologian that I read said, it may have been they didn't want their name anywhere in the front of this so that they would hear it simply from God. That made sense to me. So let's do that. We don't know which John it is, and guess what? It really doesn't matter, because the words came from God. That's the main line. Now, the canon of Scripture that we have, the 66 books that we have of Scripture right now, were from God. That's all we need to think about. They remain God's words. Now, the original audience of these three writings were house churches in the first century. And the letter of 1 John actually seems to be more of a sermon than a letter. So as we're, as we're preaching through 1 John, that's really what, what we're looking at, okay, in terms of what he's trying to say. One of the main messages there was there were false teachers trying to convince these house churches in 1 John, trying to convince the house church that Jesus was not the Jewish Messiah. So John was writing to emphasize he is who he says he is. Jesus is the Messiah. Go back and focus on what you've learned from the beginning and believe it again. So some very, very strong language. He's encouraging them to remember and to stick to the truth. And that's where we're here today. 
Because how many false messages are around us? What false messages hit our ears on a daily basis? Or that we read? Someone that speaks to us. Something that we see on TV. As, as Neil said earlier, as, as, Google, as things are Googled, you know, you can just find everything in the world out there to try to convince us that Jesus was not the Messiah. We need that teaching. Any different teachings from false teachers were to be discerning listeners. Even to what I'm saying this morning, don't believe what I say just because I'm standing up here in the, pul in, in the pulpit saying it. Make sure it lines up with Scripture. And please, if I make an error, bring it to my attention because I need to correct that. That's what discerning listeners do. And that's what John is calling the people at this house church to do. Remember what the truth is. Now, just as an additional note, we're not going to be going into this in this study, but the books of 2nd and 3rd John appear to be letters to a specific house church dealing with specific problems that they were, in, that they were in, encountering at that time. Like I said, we're not going to be going into that today or this over these, last five, these next five months, but that's, that's there. Now, the first and foremost thing we should understand better about John is in terms of who he is as a man. We know that he was one of two sons of a man named Zebedee. They were fishermen by trade. The first mention we have of John in Scripture is when Jesus walked by John and his brother James and Zebedee and probably others on the seashore. Jesus had previously called Simon and his brother Andrew to follow him. And then he looks at John and James and says the same, follow me. He called them to be disciples. In Matthew 4, verses 18 through 22, we see this account. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw, he, that is Jesus, saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Well, that may not seem such a big thing, but when you stop and examine the context and, and the air of the day, is that typically the older brother and even the second brother, and if it was a big enough business, they always stayed with their father as long as the father was alive. And they participated in the same business. So Zebedee was a fisherman, and his two sons were fishermen. Simon, or Peter, and Andrew were also fishermen with their father, and they followed them. But when Jesus uttered those two words, follow me, Scripture says they immediately got up and left. Why? What was it about those two words 
that impacted them in such a way that they could immediately, just like that, get up and go. Well, part of it was they were being spoken to by the Messiah. <laughs> there had to have been something there. You know, the, the, the spirit of Jesus impacted their spirit and they knew that he was, they referred to him as rabbi. They, they recognized that. Now keep in mind, these are Hebrew men that grew up from being Hebrew little boys. Okay? Now that's important here to understand this. Because Hebrew boys went to Hebrew school. And they learned the Talmud. They learned the scripture. They memorized the scripture. From about age, age 6 to about the age of 12 or 13 when they went to their bar mitzvah. They memorized scripture. So they were taught by rabbis. They could recognize rabbis. A lot of the recognition was the, was the, the clothing that the rabbis wore. They, they set themselves apart in that way. But they were also men of learned wisdom that was recognized in their communities. At age 12 or 13, after they went through the bar mitzvah, the best students would continue their studies in what's called Beth Midrash, which is basically like a secondary school. Okay. And these students, at the end of this phase, it was when the boy would typically look to a rabbi that he wanted to continue his studies. Up to this point, the rabbis had, you know, they, they had all the students. But at this point, if a, if a young a young teenager wanted to continue his studies, he would initiate this contact with the rabbi. He would look at the rabbis and he would pick one out. That's the one I want to study with. And he would go and walk up to the rabbi and he would say something like, I want to walk in your shoes. I want to walk in your steps. It was more than walking in their shadow. If, if it was a dusty road, which they typically were, he wanted to be able to put his feet in the same feet prints of his, of his rabbi. He wanted to be like him. Now again, the student would initiate this. And when he went to the rabbi and told him this, the rabbi would look at him and he would say one of two things. If the rabbi recognized that that young man, that young teenager, had the goods to continue to study and move past just memorization, being able to interpret and, 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 and explain scripture to people. And he would then look at that boy and he would say simply, follow me. Follow me. If the rabbi looked at the young, young man, young teenager, and think, nah, <laughs> he doesn't have what it takes. He would then say to that boy, your father needs you. Return to your father. So the boy then would return to his father and, and go into his father's business. Okay, That's where John came from. He went through Hebrew school, he went through rabbinical school, he went through Beth Midrash, and he 
may well have wanted, because, I mean, that was the longing of, of all Jewish boys, you know, to continue their studies. John didn't hear those words, follow me. What he heard was, return to your father. He needs you. So I can only imagine what that was like as this rabbi walked up to his boat and looked at James and John and said those two words that they had longed to hear since they were little. Follow me. And they did. Just like that. They didn't even hesitate. I think both of those elements are in, pl in play here. One, it was the Messiah that was calling them. But two, they, they had had those words in their mind. They wanted to hear. They longed to hear. They didn't get to hear it until then when Jesus called them. They literally decided in following that they would be that rabbi's, in this case Jesus' disciple. They would walk in his steps. As I, was, as I was praying through this this last week, over the last couple of weeks, and thinking about this sermon this morning and this explanation, I also wondered, I wonder if the 12 disciples, we know they all jockeyed for position. I wonder if any of them pushed somebody out of the way so that they could put their foot in Jesus' footprint. They may have, I don't know. I think I probably would have. But let's consider some other things that we can know about John from Scripture. We know that he had a brother, James. And by all counts, John was the younger brother, younger of the two brothers. In the very first part of Mark 3, 17, it says, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James. Since John was mentioned second behind James, scholars believe that indicates that James was the older and John was the younger of the two. We also know more about these two brothers from Scripture, that they were part of an inner circle of disciples of Jesus. There were times when those three, Peter, James, and John, were called apart from the other nine. Jesus called these three to accompany him to a high mountain in Mark 9, verses 2 through 4. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before him, before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Then on another occasion, Jesus called them apart to witness a miracle. In Luke 8, verses 49 through 56, while Jesus was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter, James, and John, and the mother and father of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. 
But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. And then on the night that Jesus was to be arrested, after they had witnessed this new meaning to the Passover celebration meal, and after Judas had departed to begin his betrayal of Jesus, they all went to the Garden of Gethsemane. In Matthew 26, beginning in verse 36, it says, Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and we know that's James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. After this event in the garden, Jesus was arrested and sentenced to death by crucifixion. There's only one disciple identified at his crucifixion, and that is this John. He was there. In John 19, verses 26 and 27, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, and we believe that he was talking about John, okay? the disciple that he loved was John. He said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour the disciple took her into his own home. You see, when Jesus was arrested, all the disciples scattered. They ran. But one returned for the crucifixion, and that was John. He came back. And at this moment, Jesus told his mother and John that John would have the responsibility for Jesus' mother after that day. Something else that we know about John, his older brother James was the first disciple of Jesus' to be martyred by beheading. He was the first of the twelve. And then of all the disciples martyred, John was the only one to survive to a rich old age. Now, he was to be executed. And we know from extra-biblical writings that John was preaching the gospel and he was put into a vat of boiling oil. That's the way he was going to be executed. And John continued to preach. And they took him out of the oil. And apparently there, were no, there was no damage. It was a miraculous survival that God carried him through that, much like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the, in the fiery furnace. When they came out of that, their clothes didn't even smell like smoke. Well, Tertullian wrote in uh, at 200 AD about John's <clears throat> martyr situation of what I just shared. <clears throat> he was put in boiling oil. He continued to preach until they took him out. And he was unscathed. There were no scars. <clears throat> the Bible is silent about how and when John died. We don't know. 
Again, there's some extra biblical references, but we really, really don't know. The Bible is silent about that, so I'm going to be silent about that. John is credited with having penned two books and three epistles. The dates are estimates at best, because he doesn't date them. But he wrote the gospel according to John in somewhere around 80 to 90 A.D. He penned three epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, between 90 and 95 A.D. And he penned the book of Revelation in 94 to 96 A.D. That's a little bit of John. Now that we have a better understanding of who this man John is, we're going to look at the first verse of this chapter this morning. In 1st John 1, 1. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. Now at first glance, and I've learned through the years that as I'm, as I'm studying a book and trying to glean information out of that book, if I'm preparing a sermon... I want to look for repeated words. That, that, that's one of the things that is just a good idea to do. As I looked at this, <laughs> I saw a lot of personal pronouns. Not just in this first verse. There's five personal pronouns in this first verse. It's apparent that James uses a number of personal pronouns, and he does, throw, does so throughout this whole chapter. I'm going to let the other guys speak to the other chapters, but that happens in the other chapters as well. So, a little spoiler, spoiler alert there. But it's apparent that John uses these personal pronouns. In the first verse, there is, we have heard. We have seen. With our eyes, we looked upon and then touched with our hands. Five personal pronouns. In fact, in the first chapter, there's actually 32 personal pronouns used out of the 256 words in that chapter. It's a large number. In this first chapter, there's 20 uses of the word we. There's seven uses of the word us. And there's five uses of the word our. It seems apparent that with the large number of personal pronouns in this passage, the message being sent by God through John is a very personal message indeed. This is something that we must attend to. In fact, if we love Jesus, and I'll make it personal, if I love Jesus, I need to attend to the fact of how personal this passage is. If I can read this passage without taking it very personally, then I think I need to re-examine my relationship with God. Because if this doesn't hit me personally, something wrong with me. So it has to be very personal. John may well have been using all of these personal pronouns to verify what he is saying here and what has been said by the apostles that they were 
eyewitnesses to what Jesus did, what he said, what they heard, what they saw, and the man that they touched. There are obviously, and we hear from Paul, he refers to the Judaizers, the, the false teachings that came in behind him as churches were established, they would come in kind of in the back door and say, well, you know, it's great that you believe that, but you need to do this as well. But what I think we need to understand about this house church receiving this sermon from John is saying what you're hearing are lies. They're not just adding to. They're saying that Jesus was not the Messiah. That's what this, this church was hearing. And they were being tempted to move back in that direction. And John says clearly, Jesus is the Messiah because we, the apostles, heard him. We saw him. We touched them with our hands. Very clearly, a personal message, not just something that he received in a vision, not just something that he thought was a good idea, not some religious concoction that he came up with on his own. This book is very personal. This book is very much given to us by God to help us order our lives. And how do we order our lives? First, by knowing the truth about the word of life. 1 John 1.1 1, 1 again says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. See, this word of life is not just a book. He's talking about a person. He's talking about the person of Jesus Christ who is the word of life. He said, that which was from the beginning. Now, we could try to explain John's statement as the beginning of Jesus' birth, his life, from that beginning. Or we could think about maybe it was the beginning of his ministry that lasted a little over three years. Maybe he was talking about that beginning. I don't think so. I think what John is talking about here, it refers to the time that vastly predates creation. You go back before God spoke light into existence. And Jesus was already there. The word of life was there. In 1 John, or I'm sorry, not 1 John, but in the book of John, the gospel according to John, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the word, speaking of Jesus. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. No doubt. Habakkuk 1 verse 12 says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die 
O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. When he says, are you not from everlasting? That was a rhetorical statement. Obviously, he is from everlasting. That's a word we don't use a lot. But the word everlasting means ancient, or even before the east. Okay, that kind of sounds strange, but think about it. Before God spoke creation into existence, there was no east or west. There was no north or south. It was just God's eternity. So Jesus was before the east. You think about east and west, and that's a, that, that's a continuous line, a straight line, perfectly straight line, that has no beginning and no end, East and west never meet. If you look on a globe and you travel east in a straight line, you always go east. If you go west in a straight line, you always go west. Those lines never touch again. That's how far the east is from the west. You know, God even says he removes our sins as far as the east is from the west. They never touch again. Jesus is before that line ever existed ancient, everlasting. The promised one, that which was, that is from the beginning, is spoken of in Micah verse 2, five, chapter 5, verse 2. We've studied this in, in well, actually we had it during our Advent this time, we've studied the book of Micah in Advent before. Chapter 5, verse 2 says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you are too little to be among the clans of Judah. For you shall, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. It's from the beginning. It's who this Jesus is. And John gives evidence that they personally saw him, touched him, heard him. Another way to read what John is saying in this one verse, he is pointing to Jesus' pre-existence. Please get that today. You don't get anything else. John is pointing to Jesus' pre-existence, that the word of life was from the beginning and that's beyond our ability to even try to grasp. I certainly can't wrap my brain around that. If I think about it too long, I could get a headache because we just can't think in that way. But Jesus himself reveals to us in Revelation twenty-two thirteen. He says of himself, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Now this is a very clear picture of the eternal nature of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He says, I am the Alpha. If I were trying to predate something in my life, I would say, for example, I was born on November the 5th, 1955. Don't do the math, I'm, I'm 66, okay, I'll just tell you. But I am. I started there. 
That's not what Jesus said. He didn't say, I was the Alpha. He says, I am the Alpha. Eternity past, Jesus exists. And he says, I am the Omega. Alpha and Omega are the, the first and last letter of the Greek alphabet. He didn't say, I, wa- I will be the Omega. I would say that on November the 5th of 2022, I will be 67 years old. I will be. That's not what Jesus said. He said, I am the Omega. So in God's eternal nature, past, present, and future for God are exactly the same. That's who he is. So John is pointing out in this first verse of this wonderful book that Jesus' pre-existence is very, very real. He simply is, not was, not going to be. He is. In our recent experience of Advent, the anticipation of the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, Through this study of the book of 1 John, we're going to have a renewed glimpse, a vision, and an experience of a living Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Our application for today. Jesus Christ is the Word of Life. When he says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands. That's Jesus. That's Jesus today. Everything that, as followers of Christ, is based upon what has been seen. I've heard in my past that faith is about things, or faith is based on things that are unseen. You ever heard that? Faith is based on things unseen. What John is saying here, faith is based on things that have been seen, have been heard, have been touched. Our faith today in 2022 is based upon things that people saw, heard, touched, experienced, walked in the footprints of Jesus. That's what our faith is based upon. But then our faith is about things that are unseen because we're not eternal. We can't see tomorrow, but God does. What we believe has been experienced by people, has been, in, has been seen by people, and has been touched by others. And they then testify to the reality of a risen Savior, Christ the Lord. Let's pray. Fathers, we come before you this morning. Again, we acknowledge your presence here. And we acknowledge the reality of the truth of your word as led by the Holy Spirit this morning. That Jesus, your pre-existence is real. 
that what was testified to by the apostles were actually seen and heard. They ate meals with you, Lord. They touched you. We know in Scripture that John even reclined on you. What an experience that must have been. We can have that same Sabbath rest as we look to you. But we long for the time that we can be in your presence physically. So, Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for all that you do for us, and we thank you for your truth. And it's in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen.